first Yopcast of 2019, featuring me, Jason Koo, your host and MC, and also your workshop leader and featured reader for this night, or that night, I should say. The Brooklyn Poets Yop is a monthly poetry workshop and open mic held at 61 Local in Cobble Hill. That's at 61 Bergen Street, off Smith Street, near the Bergen Street FG stop. For more information and to sign up, go to brooklynpoets.org. This month's illustrious open mic lineup featured Arthur Russell, Alexis Kerner, Candy Wolf, Rachel Goldberg, Julia Knobloch, Harvey Sauce, Kayla Schwab, Mike Fresentes, Isaac O. Akanmu, Catherine Pissarro Grant, Lauren Gerber Flurry, Creighton Blinn, Mary Sun, Jerry Wagoner, Todd Friedman, Phil Eggers, Del Lemon, Laura Murphy, Bill Livingston, and Olympia Mosciano. So, let's get right to the action, as I like to say, the Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic for January. Enjoy. All right, welcome back, everyone. I appreciate the spirit, (laughs) the energy. Um, It is a great night to be a poetry lover. Uh, I am hot, and you can see, I believe, I've had to de-robe, disrobe, what is the correct verb? De-robe or disrobe? Yeah, you know it. Disrobe, yeah. This is this is uh, technically probably a calf shirt. Probably not the the team from Cleveland I should be repping right now. But uh, just last year they were in the finals. If you if you don't re- forget, if you don't remember, if you don't forget, yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to believe. Yeah. Anyway, um, this is the open mic portion of the Brooklyn Poets Yop. If you don't know who I am, if you weren't here for the workshop, I, I don't think I introduced myself at the workshop either. Uh, I am Jason Koo, the founder and executive director of Brooklyn Poets. Uh, I'm also your proud uh, teacher and host and MC of the Yop tonight. It's basically like five for one deal that you were getting or something like that. Um, if you haven't been here for <laughs> I appreciate that whistle. Thank you. Uh, if you haven't been here for the open mic before, what happens is every poet that comes up here gets one poem of three minutes max. We do ask that you keep to your time. It's not just like a suggestion. It's actually like a pretty hard framework because we want to hear as many poets up here as possible. If you go overtime or if you try to read like two or three poems and then everyone's going to know and everyone's going to kind of resent you and then the people that are potentially going to read off the wait list aren't going to read anymore. So we're already starting about half an hour after we usually do. So we definitely need to keep to our time so we're not here till like 10.30 at night. No one wants to be here till 10.30 at night. Yeah, and I know you want to read your poems, but no one wants to be here till 10.30. So yeah, keep to your time. I like Arthur because he's always just like, he's like the stick behind me. Like, come on, move on. Um, Get the phone number. Yes, hold on. Just let me, let me do my thing, man. I've done enough of these, for God's sakes. Jesus Christ. I have to start swearing on my own podcast. So if you don't know, we record the open mic as a podcast, which we call the Yobcast. By the way, thank all of you. Thanks to all of you who are rating us on iTunes. Man, it's really starting to yield some results. We now have 16 five-star ratings. It took about four months to get those 16 ratings. We used to have, we used to have one, mine. And now after imploring people to do it, I have, we have 16. So uh, definitely do that afterward if we could get to 20. By February, that'd be fantastic if we get to 50, and I might just make it free for everyone. So we'll see. Uh, go on iTunes, rate us. It is called the Yopcast. So uh, if you don't want to be in the recording, you don't have to be. Just tell me, and I can take you off of it. 
Uh, we also vote for Poem of the Month at every YOP. We call it the YOP Poem of the Month Award, and the 12 winners of Poem of the Month over the course of the year compete in the December YOP for Poem of the Year honor. So we just had that last December. Many of you here for that. It's a great event. So uh, if you want to vote for Poem of the Month, you can vote once. You do that via text message. The number to vote is my phone number, so I'm about to give that to you. You're about to just invade my personal life if you want to do that. 718-374-1953. 718-374-1953. I will be repeating this throughout the night. It's amazing that no one has done that yet. Started to just like be grossly inappropriate <laughs> after getting my number. Maybe it's like everyone has a sense of boundaries, which is good. 718-374-1953. It's best to wait till the end of the open mic to vote. That would be the, the most polite thing. You can vote for yourself if you want. It's not great karma, but you can do it. I mean, Whitman probably would have done that, so it's, <laughs> it's probably fine. Uh, did I forget anything, Arthur? I don't think so. You heard about the contest. The contest opens tomorrow. Definitely submit your poems in response to what is it then between us. We're really excited about this. Uh, the quality of our event on the 31st is really going to depend on the quality of the poems that people submit. So, like, you know, if we only get, like, 10 poems or something, it's going to be kind of a shitty event. So definitely submit your poems. Spread the word. Tell as many people as you know, especially kids, people in high school, people in college. If you have children or if you just know people that have children or you know people that know people that have children, just spread the word as much as you can. We especially want the young people who a lot of them don't read Whitman or they don't even know who the fuck he is. You know, they think it's like the name of a bridge somewhere, right? So uh, definitely tell them about it so they at least go read Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, at least part of it. Yeah, it's a rest stop, exactly. That's how most people know Whitman. So spread the word, write your poems, enter the contest. So the professor of the workshop usually kicks off the open mic, so that is me tonight. It's a little weird. It's like I have to put on my poet hat now after having my MC hat on. So this is for my second book. I thought I would read this poem because it is uh, <laughs> directly in response to Crossing Brooklyn Ferry and some of these lines that we just looked at together. And the title of the poem is called Struck from the Float, Forever Held in Solution. Thank, I, thank you, I'm done. Thank you, Arthur. <laughs> Apparently I don't, need, I don't need to read anything else. Struck from the Float, Forever Held in Solution. Scuzz buckets, my thanks. You kicked me out of comfort and showed me how comfort was conniving to make me content with an almost life, the life I sort of wanted to have. And now I'm blasted out of sort of into the sun tonnage of this city. Look at the bridge accelerating against the sky, taunting the tourists with their tiny cameras on the puny pier. It dares me to think of it as a mere amenity, though this was the life ever since I first read Hart Crane and saw him on the roof of 110 Columbia Heights boasting the Brooklyn Bridge as his background. He came with nothing and left buildings. I came even reduced by you with much more and walk around his old neighborhood like it's my inheritance. I walk past 110 Columbia Heights where a Jehovah's Witnesses building now stands. I see through their watchtower to Crane's broken tower. Out of the rubble of his life, just one phrase's swift, unfractioned idiom annihilates their literature. I look down at the gleaming musculature of the East River and imagine Whitman, curious in the crowd on Robert Fulton's ferry, imagining me. Did he imagine me 
most particular me, the only son of Korean immigrant parents crossing with the others on the ferry. I don't think I would have occurred to him, which is no offense, as even the Brooklyn Bridge did not occur to him. You could say Roebling and then Crane out-imagined Whitman, but he had the right, the original idea. And you can still feel his presence, my enemies, in the movement of these waters, the generosity of his imagination rippling to me, not banked by its limits, the kind of generosity you did not extend to me as you imagined my life going nowhere. I try to extend this generosity to you, shamed by Whitman into questioning my enjoyment of the view on this gentrified shore, the reward for what I've done. I could say I'm not as bad as you think, but it's true. I'm worse than you think. <laughs> Whitman knew this, knew what it was to be evil, how we shouldn't be fooled by any soaring, generous spirit, least of all his, that there was always something evil in it, always something conquering in the creative. That bridge up there, Crane's connective tissue, grand gateway to the west, has evil in it. So many dark patches went into it. So many lives, quite literally, went into it. John Roebling killed by it. Washington Roebling crippled by it. Confined during construction to the same room on Columbia Heights that Crane occupied as he climbed the bridge with his own construction and was killed by it. But his name is now an aria out of it. His dark life made it leap with more life. Just as Whitman's life made Fulton's Ferry more lasting than a commute, even after the Roebling's bridge replaced it with this refurbished historic pier where Whitman's words have washed up to decorate the railings. And now I'm enjoying the sculpted shade reading East Goes West by Young Il Kong, the heroic father of Korean-American literature who made his share of enemies when he left his family behind during the Japanese occupation of Korea, first to study Western science in Japan by passing himself off as Japanese, then to flee to New York looking for that same rebirth, that ever-revivified life that Crane sought, but inexorably unfamiliar, rebuffed by realities Crane never had to deal with, scuffling through a missionary college for a year in Canada, reading David Copperfield out loud to his tutor to gain better command of English, enough to write the first novels in the language by a Korean in America. Kong surely imagined me. He would be proud, I think, to see me living as a poet in Brooklyn Heights, a part of his legacy, reading his book. I'm feeling all of them, Whitman, Kong, Crane, move through me, wondering how I got so lucky to live in a precinct of their imagination, then remembering that it was you, my enemies, who got me here. I had to be a little bad for that to happen. So much good has come of such bad that I can't help but worry, don't worry, whether I deserve it, whether I'm not the worst kind of American, whether I'll ever do enough to return what you gave me, whether I'll screw this up, whether I'll ever feel like I have enough, whether I am enough. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it feels good to read that poem, man. It's like an oldie but a goodie. Man, it's like, I like this poem. Uh, okay, I'm talking about how I like my own poems. That's now recorded on the podcast. I'm going to listen to that. 
Our first reader is usually one of our last readers, but today he was uh, uh, relegated to the open mic sign-up at the beginning, but that doesn't make him any less of a poet. Give it up for former Yawper of the Year, Arthur Russell. I'm not used to reading first. <clears throat> and I'm embarrassed because I'm not reading any Whitman-y stuff. This is actually a poem that's after a Wallace Stevens poem. Uh, the word entonic is in the poem, for which I could apologize, but I won't. And entonic means full of tension. And the name of the poem is The Heart is the Philosopher of Blood. She loved without the patience of a wife. Her body never scorned to be her mind. Like a woman, holy woman, forgetting an anxious dream. And yet, her moving mouth would sing and cry, cause me to sing and cry. And we were ours in that lovely time, immediate and gentle and entire. Her eyes slept near my eyes. Her whims were all and urgent that I knew. And I knew them fully, if they needed me or not. Her needs were compass north and ocean true. Her arms were barrel bands around my chest. Her speech would speak my solid heart clear through. I needed her. I needed everything she knew because she was impatient for my love. The outskirts of her marriage, where we met, was no frontier, no lawman to escape. That never was the reason for our need. And yet it was a dark and tonic place. We spoke about it often when we met. If it were only our incautious lust to take a long, hard lever to the world, if it were only one white blouse unbuttoned at the breast or breasts themselves magnificent as mercury in my hand, it would have been a little winter love, it would have been a little winter love unshivering itself, just heaven's greed unburdened in a greedy season, sex alone. But it was more than that, more even than her mouth and mine adrift in a lottery of sense. Caresses dearly meant and words half spoken, shadows moving with us on the wall. It was her need that made our loving flint and steel, that cast the eye-spliced dock line from the cleat and gave us to the sea, a sea to sail where nothing else but each the other knew and pulled us by love's capillary will. Then we, as if dislodging a robin's pine branch nest, knew the silvery madness of the fall, the ticklish madness, silvering desire. But you, my rose, it's you to whom I speak. With this same kissing mouth you kissed with yours, though not when I'm without you, not as sure, that makes me ask, 
unarrogantly, where, with all that we have done in arms and bed, with all a body's logic can explain to the desert night dismissing all refrain, where can we safely keep this time from time, its deranging minimalization? Here in the body, nowhere else, sweet rose, close to the old philosopher of blood, between the arms that close on air, between the eyes and every second's slightest vision and imprecisions every breath. Thank you. Thank you, other. Very nice. It would have been a little winter love on shivering itself. Tasty. Uh, how do you like that piano down there? Seems to never, seems to keep playing the same note over and over again. It's very, it's very modern. Uh, our next reader, is it Kerner? Is that your last name? Yeah. Okay, our next reader is Alexis Kerner. Give it up for Alexis. I'm glad you did that. I wasn't sure how to figure that out. <laughs> um, also very hard to follow, but I'll do my best. My poem is called, Let Me In So I Can See. Her emotions drowned away by the end of the bottle. The blaring of the music is her acoustic coddle. Why is she running? Where is she running to? Aren't I enough for you? For you to forget the pain that you numb away when your jaw is done for the day. I love you, Mom. Can you hear that? What can I do to bring you back? Who are those inner demons? Were you beaten? Stopped from dreaming? Some other reason? Let me in so I can see what is the pain you wish to free from which you run so desperately so I can be there for you and you for me so you can no longer hurt me and we can finally both be free. Thank you, Alexis. More rhyming. I love it. That was your first time here, right? All right, give it one more, one more round of applause for Alexis. Uh, we always love the debuters. Uh, our next reader is a longtime yopper, no stranger to many of you. Get up for Candy Wolf. <laughs> is this good? Yeah, I think a little more. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Uh. <laughs> Well, this one is called Road Trip. During the summer of 89, my husband and I stayed at the Hot Pink Madonna Inn as we traveled through San Luis Obispo while en route from LA to San Francisco. It's known as the kitschiest hotel in the world for its colorful motif and eclectic accommodations. They have the Flintstones room, which is designed like a cave, though we stayed in the Western Suite with its redwood feel and photos of John Wayne along with cowboy scenes on the wall. The nightclub had an old world charm with its, sound, uh, with its round tables and booths and pink upholstery that had little buttons in strategic places. We sipped pastel cocktails with tiny open umbrellas leaning on the, on the glass rims as we waited for the chanteuse to sachet onto the stage. When we arrived in San Francisco, 
our tall, elegant-looking hotel was close to Lombard, known as the crookedest street in the world. The stick shift was new to my husband, and we got stuck on top of the hill. We prayed hard as he found a way to get us down safely, and then we went to Giridelli Square and calmed our nerves with a hot fudge sundae. As we traveled back south, we treacherously navigated on a high, narrow road at night, while the thick, dark, smoggy fog known as June Bloom kept us captive. We heard some loud music up ahead and pulled over as we saw a rowdy bar, hoping it wasn't a mirage. We stayed there for a few hours, drinking beers with the locals until the fog lifted. Then we were back on the road, full speed ahead to Deachin's Big Sur Inn at, and, and our reserved accommodations. But to our surprise, it looked like a colony of tree houses. There was a sign for us on the, on the locked office door saying there are no keys and go up to the higher treehouse room, up the ladder on the right, but beware of masked robbers during the night. Well, I was frightened and wanted to leave, but there was nowhere else to go. And then my husband and I had a tift. I blamed him for being stuck in the June gloom in this weird setting in the middle of the night, and then I blamed him for the stick shift that happened in San Francisco. Well, after some time and some words, we cooled down, and we looked at the note again and realized that the robbers were really raccoons. <laughs> it was still a little scary, but in a different way. <laughs> we, we made up that night, we cuddled, we laughed and loved. And then when we woke the next morning, I could hear the sound of flowing water. I looked out the window and saw a creek with a cascade waterfall and it was so beautiful and relaxing. We explored the woodsy area and found a cabin with a cozy restaurant inside. Classical music was playing and the scent of freshly baked croissants filled the room. That was the last road trip that we took together and we divorced two years later. As I look back, the little tree house with the creek behind it was my favorite part. I hope that I apologize to my husband for what I said that night, as I feel a sadness while wishing I could tell him this. Thank you. Very nice. It's heartbreaking. Did I hear that right? Was that the Hot Pink Madonna Inn? Yes. <laughs> Is it actually called the Madonna Inn? It's really called the Madonna Inn, yeah. Wow. Did you really? You got married there, Bill Livingston? Well, you learn something new every day. <laughs> Where is that? Oh, yeah? I'm going to have to go there. All right, now I know where I'm going on my next vacation. Okay, thank you, Candy. Our next reader is Rachel Goldberg. Give it up for Rachel. Thank you so much. Dear little brother, Remember the summer we learned about mosh pits? 
We showed up to paper cup parking lots and church basements with X's on our hands. We slammed our bodies against other bodies and punched our way out from a seam made of fists. I dreamed that we rebirthed each other, screaming until our throats emptied of sound and our lungs ripped and I threw up the shrapnel wedged in my gut. While our parents were sleeping, you showed me videos of way better pits. The wall of death, where one army runs screaming into the mouths and elbows and ribs of the other, and then surfaces, bloody and panting. Circle pits, spinning like atoms till they become their own animal, picking up speed and grace, and in darkness, we snuck downstairs, melted marshmallows on a skewer over my lighter, a send-off, a flicker, when what we had felt crystal. Before the summer ended, and we climbed quietly back up child stairs to our separate rooms, learning to break up the night, I still play under oath, because there's that quiet energy after Dallas sings Jesus, I'm ready to come, and before he screams home as a prelude to Animal Howl. And in that space, I feel God. I love you, brother. All right, nice job, Rachel. Is that your first time at the open mic, too? All right, give it up for Rachel. Uh, you're also taking some workshops with us this winter, aren't you? Yeah. All right. You all could do that, too. <laughs> BrooklynPoets.org. Sure, you got a workshop flyer. Early registration ends February 3rd. Our next reader is a former Yacht Poem of the Year winner. Give it up for Julia Knobloch. Hi. Hi. So there are two things to know about this poem. It takes... It's called Night of Joy, and it takes its title from a bar in Williamsburg. And it has an epigraph, which is the first text message I ever got from the you in this poem. <laughs> night of Joy. I can't describe the pleasure meeting you last night. I am enjoying the lack of description. As a vessel absorbs flavor, so does flavor leave the vessel, the laws of Kashrut state. It can be done by burning, boiling, rinsing, soaking. From the night we met to the night of joy, I have walked in these same boots. Now along Lorimer they take me, away from you, backwards, through my present, into my future's past under an abating shower of geminids. Six days before the winter solstice, six days past the festival of lights. Holiness missed by one day, twice. You did not speak with me. A vessel must be discarded for 24 hours until the taste is nullified. I waited for two years. In the end of the beginning, time fell together like it did the night we met indescribable night of joy. Again, a poet's birthday, your hair again in reach, untouchable. 
The missing body is identified, stillness of scarlet beads. Some materials cannot be koshered. They absorb flavor permanently, items with small cracks, crevices, deep scratches. Winter begins, light returns. Nothing in the universe is left between us. Thank you. Thank you. That was apocalyptic. Yeah, that bar is like a uh, five-minute walk from my house. Now, uh, <laughs> I know that your ex goes there. I'm going to I'm have to assassinate somebody next time. Um, from the night we met to the night of joy, I have worn these same boots. Man, that's some poetry. Uh, that was Julian Oblock. Before that was Rachel Goldberg, Candy Wolf, Alex Kerner, and Arthur Russell. Our next reader... Sorry, Alexis Kerner. Wow, you have a good memory. Do you know her? You just remember things. This is why he's the opera of the year, or was. Our next reader is Harvey Sauce. Give it up for Harvey. Yeah, there, yeah I guess that, well, that's more or less it. Uh, uh, before I read, uh, I'd like to, for those of you who haven't already received invitations, invite you to uh, a monthly open mic with features that I host at the historic Montauk Club in Park Slope, Brooklyn, around the corner from Grand Army Plaza. Uh, it's moved from Sundays to every third Saturday from 4 to 6, so people can have brunch and get an early start on their evening. Uh, there are some flyers around. See me if you don't have one or if you're interested in what happened to the poem. <laughs> uh, oh, one second. Oh, come on, thing. Okay, this is called Oh, How We Danced. He pushes her on the porch swing. Was she him? Alternating efforts and ups and daisies, depending on of them is best able to stand straight away from walkers parked side by side. Love after 80, it must be said, <laughs> is complicated. Made the more so with a teasing, who are you again, by impending memory loss, love being the one four-letter word they hope never to forget or be forgotten by. While the porch swing calms itself, they peer into a darkened, assisted living sky <laughs> through wire gauze of cataracted eye, each remarking upon how closely the night sky, commercialized it would appear for maximum consumption, resembles a favorite game show full of commentary reruns, B-list shooting stars gravity dragged in for laughs, which might just be hot flashes. Too much menopause, too little testosterone the cause. Displaying uncommon courtesy, this pair of, let us call them, angels in waiting, veins ridged into latitudes and longitudes by varicosity, the crude cartography of old age. Sport his and hers face masks from the pharmacy to avoid passing on to others not yet in distress a common head cold who says chivalry is dead? So what if, having surmounted life's upthrusting misfortunes together without Sherpers to show them the way, they stumble now and then, laughing it off together, 
occasionally having to repeat punchlines of jokes into each other's hearing aid. Mark how these two touch often, as climbers do feeling for a secure handhold. Employing a shared bedroom with nursing staff and flat screen TV as their base camp. Most days it seems they can maintain their kiss longer than a commercial break, breathing each other in as once they did lip to lip joint smoke or fingertip scent of sex. When the young and the restless didn't simply refer to a soap, they watched sometimes else caught up with in the TV guide. And when the first sparrows of spring arrived to sing to them, they recognized the song, their song, the anniversary song. Oh, how we danced on the night we were wed. Oh, how we danced. Only now they have to support each other going up and downstairs, keeping lovers close as that original slow dance on the catering hall dance floor on the night they were wed, 60 odd years ago and counting. Hers the sour pudding he still claims to have a taste for. Thank you, Harvey. Sorry, we uh, lost some of those flyers because I spilled my beer on the table. <laughs> But the uh, open mic is uh, the Artful Dodgers, right? Open mic at, uh, wow. Artful Dodgers. Artful Dodgers. Yeah, third Sunday, four to six. Third Sunday, four to six. Park Slope. Our next reader is Kayla Schwab. Give it up for Kayla. just want to say thank you to Brooklyn Poets for just being a really warm and inspiring community and it's exactly what I was looking for when I moved to Brooklyn and it's been really awesome. So. This poem's titled, We Won't See the Earth Destroy Itself. In our cloaked communion, my eyes searched for your eyes, clear water in small ponds, hidden in total darkness, a single shade of black where onyx shadows do not overlap with navy and deep purple ones. I could not even see the lines of the blinds running across the vacant window above a shadowless pane. In shallow pain, I shut my eyes. Visions moved between us through dark and dusty rooms, straggling light obscured by gray drapery, our ghosts glooming around each corner guarding heaps of obsolete mementos, exoskeletons and shells that crumble beneath soft fingertips, bare bones the remains of an era now fossilized, but when we pressed our bodies together like hands praying, or leaves in pages of dusty books, we brought it back to life, waltzing from room to room like a maze, amazed by all we left behind, reincarnated in the space between our mouths. Is this love a type of passing or evading death and entering life again? A silence sticks to the ceiling, slowly tucks us back into the curvatures of our souls. Behind the blinds, the moon's slightest light diverts, hangs onto remnants of a late August storm. Thanks. 
Thank you, Kayla. I was trying to <laughs> tweet that one. Is this love a type of passing? If you think I'm texting over there, I'm not. I'm tweeting your brilliance. Uh, what happens is the hashtag broken pose. You know, I, I copy and paste it, and then it just decides to delete it, and then I, and then I got to do it all over again. These are the trials and tribulations of my life. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it really is. Like, why, sh why should a human being have to copy and paste a hashtag <laughs> over and over again? It's just mind-numbing. Um, our next reader is it Mike? Is it Frackentazy? Frescentes sounds much better. Give it up for Mike Frescentes. Hey guys, so as of like four hours ago, uh, my cancer is officially in remission. Yeah. yeah. And this is about cancer not being in remission. <laughs> also, a little uh, nod to Hardest Us, because uh, this was written after the last Artful Dodgers uh, open mic. <clears throat> I come in late to the Montauk Club, to the last open mic of the year, too loudly grab a seat in the second to last row. My friends are behind me. Physically and metaphorically, they brought me here because they knew I needed to hear other people's problems. And the open mic is fine, and I'm fine until an older woman reads a poem about malignancy. In her, it started in the left breast. I wonder if she, too, imagined she could feel it spreading, if every twinge in her body felt like disease. The poet reflects on sacrifice, losing a traitorous part of her, and I wonder if my body is giving me away, if my friends in the back row can read the signals of my back, know the building tension has slammed shut a steel trap me inside. She was afraid of dying young at 50, and I'm not even 30. I expect for a moment a touch on my shoulder, some futile gesture of something, but my surgeon says the tumor is too small to be detected by human hands, but large enough to hurt. And I feel too small to be detected by human hands, but large enough to hurt. The poem ends. Because life isn't a poem, the open mic continues. Other people read pieces that I clap for and don't listen to. Instead, I look ahead to when the surgeon will open mic, make an incision, perform an excision or exorcism, and nothing ends or everything does, and I join my friends in exiting. On the steps outside, I bring it up first, laugh it off like, haha, what a coincidence. Isn't that funny? What are the odds? What are my odds? And we metastasize out into the rainy city. Yeah. Thanks. Good stuff. Keep it going. Mike Versentes. Is that your first time here, too, Mike? All right. Another round of applause. Killing it. I feel too small for human hands, but large enough to hurt. Man, that is beautiful. Uh, our next reader, I think, is another Yop debuter. I might screw up this. Is it Akonmu? That's right? Yeah. All right, give it up for Isaac O. Akonmu. Thank you. 
nervous. My first time doing anything like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the title of this poem is One Day. I told her to jump. She said, why? I said, I'm not sure, but I feel like you should. She responds with a look almost audibly calling me insane. With no other options, I revert to explaining the spiritual, practical, and physical significance of jumping, citing relevant sources. She responds to this passionate yet flawless argument with a look of uncertainty and nothing else. The next day, after 24 hours of calculated thought, she, in the midst of a conversation about sliding, whispers in a seemingly matter-of-fact tone, I've jumped. I jumped at such a sight. She picked her nose, then she picked her ear as locations for her next piercings. Each piece of metal was another stab at detecting her identity, but the alarms remained silent. All alone, silent nights hum tunes to her subconscious. She, she builds upon her fortress of insecurities. Hide and seek is her favorite game. She's been hiding in the same place for years. She says to herself under her breath, he'll never find me here. Her fireplace is never lit. The man at the door never stops knocking. His persistent love slowly chips at her guard. Stop it, she shouts. But her heart cries the opposite. One day, she'll let go. One day, she'll open the door. One day, her fireplace will be lit. Thank you. Man, these debuters have been solid tonight. Huh? All right, another round of applause for Isaac Akanmu. Great job tonight. We have, I believe, another Yop debuter, uh, unless I'm mistaken. Give it up for Catherine Pissarro Grant. Thanks. Hi. Thanks for having me, everyone. Um, I'm going to read the poem I, the Whit Whitman related poem I wrote, actually. So it's a bit drafty, but at least it's short. <laughs> What is it then between us? Less than ever. Less elbow room in the city. Less breathing room in the ether. Less room for interpretation, for doubt. Less time for conversation. Fewer seconds, yet each distended with stress. The vast worryscape of digital time. We are too close in to see the between or to long for it. And in that closeness, we breathe fetid air what is it then between us? A two-way mirror at a focus group. Glass waiting to be noticed. All the pauses that make up our rush. Between us is the hurrying in parallel to the same place in blinded lanes. No collision imminent without breach of barriers. Barriers are between us. Let us collide eye to eye. I like that poem. You definitely need to submit that one. All right. Uh, didn't even feel that drafty. I like drafty, though. It's like there's breezes going through it or something. Whitman would have liked that. Uh, is Daniela Nicola here? No? 
negative. Uh, uh, maybe I mispronounced it, but yeah, Danielle, Danielle. Anyway, probably not. Last name Nicola. Okay, moving on. Our next poet is a lovely friend of the Yop. Definitely, uh, I'm trying to think of. She dates this Kansas City Chief guy, or is married to him. Anyway, that was a terrible. That was the worst intro ever. Give it up for Lauren Gerber Flurry. <laughs> since I've read anything. Um, this came out of a yop from last year. I'm not quite sure if it's an anti-ode or an ode yet, and you'll see why, but I'll call it um, anti-ode to underwear. <laughs> why do we put it under there? This fabric I prefer to call underwear, not panties, which adhere to a certain femininity. Strike that in favor of gender neutrality. Holes hidden behind crevices creased. There's no telling what's hiding beneath. Make no mark of your true animalness, favoring a facade of cleanliness. Deny your naturalness, hide your flatulence, and saving your free fall from a wayward free ball. Thank God for underwear. Well done. A <laughs> free ball. Yeah, I think I feel like that was the perfect intro for that poem. I mean, maybe it's just maybe it's just me. Yeah. Wow. A wayward free ball. It's kind of a phrase you can't unlearn. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I feel like that's an ode. Definitely. Not that we really care. Uh, anti-ode, ode, they're all kind of the same. Our next poet is a long-time yopper. Give it up for Creighton Blinn. Hey. <laughs> Grief is easy. Concentrated and structured by mundane logistics and public rituals. Loss is less defined. Lacking expressive flourishes, its rights are internalized, solitary, a spectral sensation drifting in and out of consciousness, reverberating through space, which will never again be occupied in quite the same way. Thanks. Thank you, Creighton. Great poem. Efficient, too. I love it. Uh, our next poet, I think, is another Yop debuter, unless I'm wrong. Give it up for Mary's son. Thanks. Um, this poem is called Rainforest Mind. The first time, I am wearing green cotton. The second time, black denim. The third, white linen when they try to name my rainforest mind. Like sticking magnets to wet leaves. They're struggling, me too. Rainforest mind is not capital letters or a doctor's scrawl, this clueless checklist. Tell them, 
Tell them that rainforests are histories, armies of giants growing from a holy wine, sopping birthplaces dried out too soon. Rainforest mind is a self as wood cortex, pacing thoughts as branching vines, this world as so many tree children knit together by loneliness and a yearning of roots. Mine learned to drink blood water, survived on the poison of a choiceless pain. Of course I grew sideways. Rainforest mind has you watering dark gardens, has you leaving the alarm shrieking for hours just so something will really need you. Rainforest mind remembers the rapes in the Rainier summit in the same breath. It is less where things fall now, more how deep, how far they stretch the accordion of your branches. Rainforest mind needs to grow over the sun sometimes, needs you to find comfort in our gaps because how can a forest exist without shade? You were made to grow blind, to foster a darkness so gorgeous it learns starlight. No one shames the first frost for its murders. Do not shame yourself for the corpses you never asked for. All you can do is carry them in your cage of ribs, smear peat and moss on their eyes when their stares do not serve you, write the novel's worth of happy endings your spine does not believe in, love the child, I give you permission. A white coat will tell you that you are trying to outrun loneliness, but how can the canopy leaves be lonely? They are nestled so close, a drop of rain takes 10 minutes to hit the ground. Rainforest mine means splinter off in the middle of a sentence, another vine is growing. Rainforest mine doesn't plan commutes, doesn't really see time, doesn't accept the first or second or third ending. Rainforest mine won't remember birthdays or cook or allow you to pretend at parties, but is always sure that everything can grow, can be better and fuller and more branched than the ground understands what to do with. Rainforest mind needs you to read irresponsibly, to order delivery from 50 feet away, to hang upon your mother and move to Seattle. <laughs> Give your grief to its cedars, count their generations, and realize they have absorbed so much more than your own. When you are done trail running, when you realize you have caught your breath, the forest will start to hyperventilate again. Let it. Let the thoughts sev. Cross your boughs protectively over one another and watch as they touch you through a glass wall. Rainforest Mind sings an ode to the softness in our skulls, to the fear of growing whole because who are you without the reverberations? Ignore the straight lanes you think everyone lives in. Rip yourself open and sew your own sutures, split so often they become familiar seams. Hold yourself together as another one leaves. You know you are already growing a new vine in case the last offerings were not enough, and you are already leaving it too. Thank you. Damn, man. The debuters got it going on tonight. They also have the most fans, <laughs> clearly. That was Mary Sun, who is also taking a workshop this winter, which, again, you can do. You can just be like Mary and Rachel. Uh, before that was Creighton Blinn, Lauren Gerber-Fleury, Catherine Pissarro-Grant, Isaac O'Akami. I will go over all of these names at the end. Our next reader, longtime yopper, give it up for Jerry Wagoner. <laughs> Too high. Yeah. Okay. Mike's not the only one. <laughs> 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 
Well, I bought me a faded trailer house next to a junkyard west of town. My truck is up on cinder blocks. My heart's buried six feet down. I got a two-woman bruise. I can't make no excuse. I knew what I was doing, and I was bound to lose. I used to work a thankless job under clouds of toxic dust. She put a padlock on the kitchen, left me begging for the crust. I got a two-woman bruise. I won't take no excuse. Tell me, what have I been doing that I deserve such abuse? I used to be a young man, till I learned a fact of life. You can't kiss up two old women when one of them's your wife. I got a two-woman bruise. I won't fake no excuse. I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know how to choose. This chasm is an ocean, twice as cold as dead man's sleep. Pretty fishes now swim sadly through all the tears I weep. I got a two-woman bruise. I can't shake myself loose. Don't ask me what I'm doing. I haven't any clues. My soul, it has been splintered into shards of old black doubt. Please whisper softly, whiskey. Teach my ache to sweetly shout. I got the two women blues. Oh, don't make no excuse. I should have known better. I don't want to be in my shoes. It's cowboy hats, rifle racks, nights in freezing rain. It doesn't matter what I do. Everything just stays the same. I got the two women blues. I won't give some excuse. I climbed up on the scaffold. I put my neck in the noose. I knew what I was doing, and I was bound to lose. Interesting. What's been going on with Jerry lately? <laughs> that was definitely the... <laughs> oh, that was the blues workshop. Yeah, that's Robert Gibbons. Uh, I think that was definitely the first time someone's drank whiskey on this podcast. So I like that. <laughs> it's been uh, inaugurated. Uh, by the way, I went to go exchange that orange sweater you bought me, and uh, little did I know that Lord and Taylor was like completely closing. And uh, was that one on Fifth Avenue? I went in there, and uh, I was like, "Where's the men's section?" He's like, "Over there." I went there. There were three items left. <laughs> Great. No, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not mad at you or anything. I just thought it was a funny story. I like waded through all this hordes of holiday traffic, and then I get there, they're like, that's the men's section. It was like a pair of pants, a shirt, and like some sweatpants or something. <laughs> I, like, I think I'll just keep this orange sweater. Yeah, 
it's a little, it's a little big, but that's fine. Anyway, there's a funny Lord and Taylor story for you. Don't don't go there. It's it's closed now. <laughs> uh, I could go to like Jersey or something, but why would I do that? Why would I do that? Yeah, why would I? We can hang out maybe. We'll go shopping together. Anyway, our next poet is Todd Friedman. Give it up for Todd. This is called How God Got Here, in case you wanted to know. When I was seven years old, my mother let me know that I didn't have to see my father if I didn't want to. But I never had to think about that. I always wanted to see my father. I remember one weekend in particular. I couldn't wait to show my father what I'd figured out. As soon as we got in the car, I showed him how to get to where the stores were. And I pointed to a sign in the butcher's window. That's Hebrew, isn't it? I said to my father. I couldn't read the letters, but I had figured out what the signs, that the signs said kosher. My father seemed very pleased. Then I wanted to talk about another topic. I wanted to talk about God. My father explained that God created everything in the whole world. But who created God? I wanted to know how God got here. My father said that no one created God. God was always here. But how could God have no beginning, I wanted to know. My father said these were good questions. But there were things that only God could understand. And again, my father seemed pleased. It is now many years later, but I often think of this moment, sitting in a car with my father, looking out at the universe together. Damn good, damn good. Todd Friedman killing it lately. Uh, our next poet, another Yop regular. It's just really nice to hear the, you know the people who come back every month, and you just hear their poems, and they build, and you it sort of pieces together a little portrait of that poet. I like to think of it as. Anyway, that was sort of corny. Anyway, uh, our next poet is another one of these poets I like to hear every month. Give it up for Phil Eggers. Confession of a bartender. I am a bartender. I make my living by pouring and serving alcoholic beverages. When I first entered this business, I was young and aimless, new to New York City, filled with dreams of fame and fortune, and a sizable Brooklyn rent. Dreams would have to wait while I scoured Craigslist for a job, which is how I landed up as a busser at a French bistro on Atlantic Avenue. All a temporary stay, of course, as I laid down the groundwork to pursue the plan. However... Once fully settled in and trained, something shifted. I saw that where I really wanted to be, where I really needed to be, was behind the pine. It was there that I saw a role full of respect and attention, a role that carried both gravity and delicacy. I noticed the way patrons would seek a bartender's knowledge and approval, the way guests revered them as they mixed and made their drinks with authority and ease. What I saw was purpose, fame and fortune be damned. 
So I began to take note of the ins and outs of food and beverage, service and hospitality, how to be both omnipresent and invisible, how to anticipate your guests' needs even before they do. I studied tasting everything, tasting everything, tasting everything, reading beer Bibles, poring over cocktail how-tos, seeing, swirling, smelling, sipping, and savoring red and white wines glass by glass by glass. I learned how to keep my head above the weeds and to tolerate the lot of humanity, from clueless managers to finicky yelp to tantric toddlers, all with a my pleasure attitude. I put in my time, I worked my way up from busser to runner to server, and now I am a bartender, the most senior, trusted, and experienced front of house position. I am a bartender. And I owe you all an apology. Because you see, a bartender is not this mythologized position I put in my mind all those years ago as I watched the women and men who held it before me who seemed so worldly and wise, so sure in everything they did, so much of what I wanted to be? No. A bartender is a drug pusher. A drug pusher protected by the law of the land. I have a 21st Amendment guarantee to make my money off of addiction and dependence. And yes, for the most part, those I serve will have a happy and healthy time, perhaps a blurry time, maybe even a hungover time, but a happy and safe time, a no harm, no foul time. But begin to dig a little deeper, and you'll soon discover something sinister about the whole endeavor. There's a dark side to this business. It's in the drinks I pour that tip the balance towards misfortune, and all for the sake of putting an extra dollar in my tip jar. For instance, a man will piss his pants in front of the woman he planned to propose to, and thus torpedoing their affair and taking out some love in the world with it. And I put an extra dollar in my tip jar. For instance, a woman will be incapacitated by a discreet drop of a drug into her drink, taken home against her will, and wake up to a world that will blame her for it. And I put an extra dollar in my tip jar. For instance, a man will fall to his death, losing balance while fishing out his keys from his pocket, blood and brains running down his stoop, a family forever torn apart, and I put an extra dollar in my tip jar. No amount of happy encounters I may have facilitated can ever wash away this blood from my hands. I am no Pontius Pilate, but Lady Macbeth agonizing even in my sleep, having turned revelries into nightmares. I've seen the faces of broken men and women, and it is that brokenness that keeps me quite literally fed. I could shift the blame to their overindulgence, claim my influence is indirect, yet too often I continually sell these people on just one more. Just one more. Just one more. Even while on the inside, I implore them, please... No more, no more. There is no salvation in what you seek. And this is my confession. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to sell a poem or a painting of a square. I don't know how else to live but by this route, this route in which I profiteer off of loneliness, desperation, confusion, and regret. But I have rent to pay, credit card debt, bills stacked on top of bills. I need a drink to get through the day too sometimes. I feel trapped. I feel duped. I was misled. Why did no one tell me about this weight I'd have to shoulder? I don't know what to do. I am implicit in so much pain. And what scares me is that I doubt I'll do much to change the situation. I put in too much time, firmly planted my roots. I made this bed to lay in. I'm stuck here. And besides, I like the hours. The money is good. I earned the title. I'm the bartender. I'm sorry. God damn, man. I thought that was going to be a fun, light poem. I was laughing, and man, did that get dark. Uh, but I liked it. I like that. I am the bartender, man. It is that brokenness that 
quite literally keeps me fed. Jesus. Phil Eggers, everyone, our next poet. Yeah, give him another round of applause, sure. Our next poet, longtime yapper. You know her from the Brooklyn Poets Anthology. Give it up for Del Lemon. Thank you, thank you. Um, this poem was actually inspired by something I heard at the Yop in December, a line, um, and also from seeing this play. So thank you. Uh, it's called The Waverly Gallery. When I was living on the Upper West Side and working as a waitress in Greenwich Village, I used to take the subway downtown and walk across town on Waverly P Place past one Waverly coffee shop, then past the Waverly Gallery to the other Waverly coffee shop where I worked. I never walked down into the gallery, which was located just below street level in the basement of the Washington Square Hotel across from the Washington Square Park, but I could see artwork hanging in the gallery through the windows and remember how it looked, mostly pleasant paintings with landscapes and maybe a few abstracts, but nothing too contemporary. There were no other art galleries in the immediate vicinity, and besides, I wasn't in the habit of frequenting art galleries back then. I lived in a dark studio that I shared with an actress who later dated an artist. He got a job at Food in Soho, where a lot of other artists worked while trying to make art in their spare time. And there were a lot of other galleries in Soho back then in the early 1980s. And I guess there used to be a lot of galleries and art studios near where the Waverly Gallery was located, but not anymore in the 1980s. Now, 40 years later, there's a play on Broadway called The Waverly Gallery about the woman who used to sit in that art gallery. I love that play. It makes me wish that I had walked into that gallery when the woman was sitting there so that I could remember her. But I remember the gallery, which means my story kind of intersected with the story in the play. Or maybe we just missed each other with our stories, which I guess happens all the time. We are all in our stories, moving around this city, missing each other. I was so lost when I worked in that coffee shop, trying to figure out how I would live the rest of my life, trying to get away from where I had been born, trying to find something else that had some meaning or purpose that was worth living for. Eventually, my roommate's boyfriend got me a job in an art gallery in the East Village in the late 1980s. And that's what gave me a sense of purpose, a sense that art is important because art can change things. I saw it happen at that art gallery and that changed me. And I love this play on Broadway because it is so simple and personal, just a piece of this playwright's autobiography, the story of his grandmother who owned an art gallery in Greenwich Village and got Alzheimer's. Last page. But so many people are seeing this piece of his story and connecting with it because they have stories too, stories about living in this city or wanting to live here, stories about getting old or having aging parents, stories about being young and having to deal with family, stories about having trouble dealing with all the challenges we have to face in a lifetime. It's astounding how we all have stories and how we can all be walking around missing each other. But then we read a poem or a book, see a movie or a piece of art or a play like the Waverly Gallery. Thank you so much. The lemon with the good stuff. Damn, that was good. 
It's called the Waverly Gallery. Yeah. Yeah. Has anyone else seen that? Yeah. yeah. You seen it? All right. Is it still showing? Yeah. Right. Come on, that shit tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, okay, we have a couple of readers left. Our next reader is one of the co-winners of Yacht Poem of the Year for 2018. You might remember her from December. Get up for Laura Murphy. Yeah. Uh, this is just a short, simple poem, um, and it's after the Soldiers and Sailors Monument uh, in Riverside Park in New York City. Um, along the riverside. They never wrote the boys' names, just the towns where they died. Above the sun-warmed granite, a fly swivels counterclockwise. Light climbs the balustrade as the day sinks westward, and on the pillar, a marble eagle perches, and there's nothing but sky where its beak should be, and the sky is as blue as longing, as blue as homesickness in June, and the boys who saved the Union listen for the warbling nuthatch, search the faces of the women weaving crowns of clover in the grass, chase the children running up and down cracked slabs of taupe stone, and find no one that they know. Thank you, Laura. Well done. Our next poet is the 2018 Yawper of the Year. Give it up for Bill Livingston. Keep it going for Jason. Yeah. Multitasking like a mofo. I'm good. All right. This one's called Next to the Last Exit. I want to go back to 1976 when my mother stacked the vinyl, the better music always toward the bottom. I want to read her obituary without the regret of not adding more to her story. I want to hear a chorus of apologies from Trump voters. <laughs> I want to infiltrate the Hells Angels and interview them about the Me Too movement. <laughs> I want the junkies on my block to get the gentrification memo when they exchange their needles around the corner. I want to go back to that market in Paris and capture the old woman in the mirror. I want my dog to outlive me, even though the little bitch hates me. <laughs> I want to wake up one morning to a big bowl of oatmeal. I mean opium. I want to stop assuming a bald eagle as a Twitter avatar and means the user is racist. I want to stop resisting their urge to assault actors in interna interactive theater. I want to push the boundaries of appropriateness as an actor in interactive theater. <laughs> I want to stop seeing the American flag as a symbol of the alt-right. I want the gates of heaven to look like the checkout lines at Trader Joe's during prime time. <laughs> or just the masses at a woman's march. I want the gates of hell to be a giant intuitive vacuum hose. I want to stop trembling like a chihuahua in a cold hallway at the thought of a millennial interviewing me for a job. <laughs> I want to stop thinking about women when I hear the word ephemera. I want to calculate all the money I saved cutting my own hair and buy a good bottle of scotch, a bag of weed, and maybe flowers for my wife. 
I want to teach the world to sing in perfect hegemony. <laughs> I want to clear all history, but I can't remember my passwords to save my life. <laughs> I want to revisit the dream I'm making out with Jennifer Lawrence on a white steed, just to see how far it goes. Dreaming is not cheating. I want to use a cane before I even need one. It will conceal a sword and some of that good scotch. <laughs> I want to be the old face in a dirty window like the ghost of St. Mark's Place. Children stopping, pointing. There he is. <laughs> I want to abandon the idea of retiring elsewhere, die in Brooklyn, cremated, scattered in Adam Yauch Park, next to the last exit, surrounded by glass and steel of progress. It will be the coolest I've ever been. Thank you. Yeah, Yopper of the Year, Bill Livingston. God damn. <laughs> With Jennifer Lawrence on a white steed. <laughs> the word steed is so funny there. Uh, wow. So what did you do with your, your prize money from the Yopper of the Year? You're talking about all those things you, were, you would buy? Did you buy that bottle of scotch? Yeah? Yeah? All right. Well, invite me over when you buy that bottle. I mean, it's only fair. I get, you know. Yeah. Here's what the Yarp of the Year did. He took his prize money and donated like half of it back to Brooklyn Poets. I mean, oh. round of applause for Bill Livingston. This is how we're still here today. People like him. Good man. <laughs> That's also why it's Yarp of the Year. This is a beautiful man with a beautiful message. Uh, all right, we have time for one more reader off the wait list. I've, I feel terrible because there's like 10 people on this wait list, but, you know, it's almost 10. Come back in February. Sign up. Or I'm telling you, I tell you every month, sign up after the op ends. That's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be full in like uh, 48 hours. So don't wait till like Thursday. It, you know, you won't be able to sign up for the advance list. Anyway, one more reader. Olympia, is it? Oh God, that's the last name that I got ever. Uh, Mashtanu? Mashtanu. Olympia Mashtanu. Give it up for Olympia. My house in the sky. <clears throat> Let's say the angel asks, what's around you, love? These mostly houses. Let's say you're listening to the evening news when your father suddenly comes in and asks, who died today, girl? Them mostly houses. Let's say all you have is a blanket, a plastic cup for change, a sacred book, and no one asking, what's missing, child? Those, them, mostly houses, mother. Mostly houses, they say. All right, great poem, great ending, thank you. Okay, wow, that was a great open mic. It's good every month. Um, all right, to review the readers. That was Olympia Moshanu. That's about the best I could do. 
Bill Livingston before that, Laura Murphy, Del Lemon, Phil Eggers, Todd Friedman, Jerry Wagoner, Mary Sun, Creighton Blinn, Lauren Gerber Fleury, Catherine Pissarro Grant, Isaac O. Akonmu, Mike Fresentes, yes? <laughs> Kayla Schwab, Harvey Sauce, Julia Knobloch, Rachel Goldberg, Candy Wolf, Alexis Kerner, and Arthur Russell. So the number to vote, 718 374 Vote once, please. 718-374-1953. You just give me the poet's name is the easiest way. Rather than the title, I might not remember the title of their poem. 718-374-1953. Our next yop is in February. What's the second Monday of February? Does anybody know? It's probably around Valentine's Day. That's true. It is 11th because February 3rd is Sunday. Right. So February 11th, the YAWP will be led by someone you know, Julie Hart, right here. Give it up for Julie. She is teaching a workshop on the elegy starting in February. So the YAWP workshop will undoubtedly be related to the elegy. So if you are feeling uh, full of sorrow and grief, as most of, our, most of us are these days in this country, definitely come out to the February YAWP. Remember the, the contest. Write those poems. Make them amazing. Submit them. I would love to see you on May 31st at Smack Mellon and Dumbo reading those poems. All right. Thanks. Good night. Sorry to keep you so long. So, there you have it. The Brooklyn Poets Yop Open Mic for January 14th, 2019. This is the part where I usually thank the professor for teaching our workshop, but that is me, so I'm going to refrain from thanking myself. Uh, I will give you some information uh, about the contest that the workshop was related to. At the January Yop, I led a workshop on Whitman's Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. And you may already know, but if you don't, I'm about to tell you uh, this is the bicentennial of Whitman's birth, or this is the year in which that bicentennial will occur on May 31st, 2019. And leading up to that bicentennial, we are holding a poetry contest uh, in which contestants or poets, poet applicants, I don't know what to call you, uh, are submitting a poem in response to the line or question, what is it then between us from Crossing Brooklyn Ferry? So uh, to find out more about that, go to brooklynpoets.org, look under events, click on the Whitman Bicentennial page, and you will see all the info, and you can submit your poem. The poems are due by March 3rd. And at that point, uh, a team of readers, including myself, will select finalists in three different age brackets and send those to the judges and our illustrious judges, our, sorry, our, our illustrious judges, our, our illustrious judges are Tina Chang, Bill Poet Laureate, Mark Doty, and Rowan Ricardo Phillips. So they will be selecting three winners in each category, and the winners, all nine of them, will be reading with the judges on May 31st. 2019 at Smack Melon in Dumbo, which is going to be a really great night. We're going to have a party that night. So definitely check that out uh, on bookofpoets.org. Hope you submit a poem by March 3rd. 
uh, word about the workshop I am leading for Brooklyn Poets this season. It's a workshop I always teach in the winter on blank verse. My apartment in Williamsburg is one of the last bastions of blank verse probably in the world. There aren't many people studying this meter. Uh, meter. <laughs> I've turned into an English person. Studying this meter or even a uh, little on writing in it anymore. But uh, if you take this workshop, we will do that together. It begins on... February 17th, and the registration deadline is February 10th, but the early registration deadline is February 3rd. If you are not a member and want a $15 discount, definitely check that out on BrooklynPost.org as well. Uh, congrats to Mary Sun for winning January Yacht Poem of the Month for her poem, Rainforest Mine. This is her <laughs> Brooklyn Poets Yacht Open Mic debut. This seems to be happening more and more later lately because all of our debuters are just kicking ass. Mary has earned a spot in our 2019 Poem of the Year Smackdown coming your way on December 9th. So congrats again to Mary. Our next Yop comes your way on February 11th. It will be led by longtime Yopper and former Yopper of the Year Julie Hart, who has just joined our faculty to teach an upcoming workshop on the Elegy, which begins on January, sorry, February 20th. So if you want a little glimpse of that workshop, sort of figure out if you want to apply for it or register for it, uh, come out to that yop and you'll get a little taste of it during your workshop thank you for listening thanks to all of you who are rating us on itunes we are up to 17 five-star ratings which is really wonderful it'd be great if we could get up to 20 by the next yop or even beyond that uh so keep those ratings coming keep listening spread the word and hopefully we'll see you at the february yop have a good day